welcome to the inaugural episode of Conversations with Bobby and Larry. Uh, I'm Bobby. And I'm Larry. And uh, despite the names, we are not VeggieTales. I am not a tomato. Larry is not a cucumber. I'm not. <laughs> well, that's, that's up for you to decide. I suppose if we if you were a vegetable, uh, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Oh, all right. All right, so today uh, in this inaugural episode, uh, we're primarily going to be introducing ourselves, but we're also going to be looking at a uh, a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach by T. David Gordon. Uh, just as a bit of housekeeping, and before we get into it, uh, I do have a lung condition uh I do apologize for any coughing uh, that uh, y'all may hear. I shouldn't say that y'all might hear, because uh, y'all will hear it. Uh, so once again, I do apologize for that. All right, so Larry, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself first? Yes, uh, I have uh, an associate's degree in religious studies and church ministries from Fruitland Baptist Bible Institute and uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina. I then went to the Southeastern Seminary up in Wake Forest and earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Biblical Studies. I then went to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I took a love for Christian apologetics and studied under the great Norman Geisler uh, Christian apologetics, so I earned a Master's degree in apologetics. And then I went to what was Piedmont International University. They have changed their name now to Carolina University. I got a PhD from Piedmont in uh, biblical studies with a major in New Testament. I have been a professor. Actually, I was a department chair. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor now. Uh, I've spoken at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics numerous times. I've published in academic journals uh, a couple of times. Uh, I've been a a pastor. Uh, I preached my first sermon November 5th, 1995. So I've been preaching for over 28 years now. And, uh, but I think, I, I think, uh, you know, my greatest love is just spreading the word of God in any way that I can. So not much to tell, but that's who I am. That sounds like a quite a lot to tell. Uh, where were, where are you in an adjunct professor at currently? Uh, Barber Scotia College in Concord, North Carolina. They are an HBCU school, a historic black college or university. And oh, um, it's Barber Scotia in Concord, North Carolina. Alrighty. Uh, so my name, uh, once again is Bobby, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, I don't currently have any, uh, higher education. I'm currently in college though, at Columbia International online for a, uh, general studies degree, uh, going for a bachelor. Uh, my plan is to go on to Charleston Southern to get a, bachelor's in uh, business administration as well as a certificate uh i'm sorry a certified kingdom advisor uh certification <clears throat> excuse me uh and and from there uh, we'll see what else god has for me so that's kind of uh our educational well let me, let me uh my, uh, I currently work at the uh, Ladies Island Bridge in Buford, uh, also called the uh, Richard V. Woods Memorial Bridge. Uh, it is currently, well, it's on the, it just recently got added to the uh, National Register of Historic Places uh, about this time last year, actually. Um, if you've seen, uh, Forrest Gump, the scene where he's running across the bridge, uh, that's the bridge. And the, when I say I operate the bridge, it's actually a swing bridge. It rotates in the middle to allow uh, 
uh, sailing vessels and tugboats, and we've actually had the occasional cruise ship come through there. Obviously a smaller one, uh, but cruise ship nonetheless. Right, so that is my professional background. Are you, are you, uh, do you want to talk about your uh, uh, visual impairment? Yeah, that, that's fine. Uh, I'm also visually impaired. Um, I've got about four or five feet of vision, but it has never stopped me before in the, uh, either in the ministry or in uh, pursuit of academic studies. It's something I've had for over 30 years, and I just keep on keeping up. Amen. Uh, now I've got my own little fig- physical issues. I've got the uh, aforementioned uh, lung issue. Um, what it is is it's asthma exacerbated by a condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin is apparently an enzyme found in both my lungs and my liver. Uh, and what that enzyme does is it eats another enzyme that uh, and that other enzyme kind of eats into the elastic of my lungs uh, so you know when you breathe in expand your lungs uh, you know the tissues and the uh, and everything in your lung expands uh, you know, it, it's elastic, so this enzyme that's eating into that elastic, it has to be uh, stopped by this, by the alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, enzyme, and I I have a lack of that enzyme. I'm currently receiving treatment for that, so hopefully the destruction of my lung tissue will cease. So that's our respective physical issues Um, we uh, you're at a church up in uh, Fort Lawn South Carolina up near uh, Charlotte uh, and I live down in the low country of South Carolina uh, near Beaufort Uh, but our connection is that uh, I was a member of a church that you preached at uh, for several years down here uh, we have since moved on from that church, but uh, we've remained friends and uh, of a sort colleagues. That is correct. So, so, uh, yeah. Anything uh, you want to add before we get into uh, the book? Uh, not really. I just, you know, I'm passionate about telling people the truth, and so, you know. Mm-hmm. This book's going to be an interesting uh, summation, I think. Yep. Also, one more little bit of uh, background on me. I do consider myself to be a stewardship evangelist and apologist. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to educate more people about the uh, need for stewardship, and I don't mean just financial stewardship. Uh, stewardship uh is something that impacts uh, all of our lives, all of a Christian's life, not just uh, in financial uh, matters. Uh, But we'll get into that in future episodes. All right, so T. David Gordon, Why Johnny Can't Preach, The Media Have Shaped the Messengers. So overall, what was your... Uh, first impression after reading the book. It's okay. I mean, I've read that this book is in a field of studies called homiletics, which is uh, preaching basically. And I've read other mm-hmm. preaching books before. Um, but the one thing that, that stunned me is I think the t- the way you title a book needs to catch the, the essence of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so when you say Johnny can't preach, I think you need to deal with, and Dr. Gordon does not, mm-hmm. this idea that maybe Johnny can't preach because Johnny wasn't called to preach. There are a lot of mm-hmm. preachers out there 
even in our modern day, I've known seven guys that are quote unquote, former pastors. Mm -hmm. And, um, today they're not in the ministry. So maybe he should have, uh, looked at that Johnny can't preach because Johnny's more into that to preach and maybe provide four or five, um, points about how do you know you're called to preach? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he just kind of assumes that everybody who preaches and that the media shapes their, um, their preaching. And Mm -hmm. though that may be true, it's also true that not everybody who, who, uh, preaches is called. And so I I think that was a, a big hole in his book that Mm -hmm. you're going to write the fact that Johnny can't preach. You need to answer the question. Can Johnny is the reason Johnny can't preach is because Johnny's not called to preach. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question for you. Something just a question just popped into mind. Uh, Is it possible for people who have, uh, entered into the ministry, but left, uh, uh, still called to preach, even though they're, uh, running away from it, I guess. Is that possible? Um, yes. In fact, uh, people will disagree with my interpretation of a verse, but in Romans chapter 11, it says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Mm-hmm. People can leave the ministry because they get tired. They get burned out. But I believe, and people can disagree with me on this, I believe that that if you're truly called, you can leave for a short season, six months to a year, maybe two years, but eventually you're going to have that hungering and thirsting for for preaching and for pastoring. Uh, But the guys that I know are out of the ministry, some of them with moral failures, and... um, they're not back in the ministry these days. So I, I, I do believe you can leave and walk away, burned out, maybe different other reasons, but I do believe you'll have that hunger and thirst. So you'll mm-hmm. eventually want to preach again. Should people who have experienced moral failures, uh, such as, you know, cheating on their wife or whatever, uh, should they, uh, be back in the ministry? Not without restoration. I mean, okay. the, the, the Bible says in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore restore them that, that have a fall. Now, that's not an exact quotation from Galatians 5, 1, but I think that those who've had a fall, immorality, maybe alcohol, um, financial, if they're truly called, they'll they'll want to undergo a restoration process. And for, I don't think you can get a certain deadline. I'm gonna be restored in six months. I think every person is different, um, and they should not go after the restoration process and just go right back into pastoring. They need to go pre- preach the gospel, maybe as a fill in, and then eventually work their way up to possibly an interim and then back into the full-time pastor that way they can that way they they can be judged um on their their restoration did it really hold all right uh i want to read what uh why uh or the reason that uh dr gordon gives for writing this book um Just a a couple of uh, paragraphs here. All right, so this is on page 15. Uh, This short book is subtitled, well, let me quote, uh, this short book is subtitled, The Media Have Shaped the Messengers. Media ecology is not yet well known as an academic discipline, nor is it especially well known as a subset of culture analysis. It does exist, however, and I teach an introduction to media ecology at the college level and have been influenced by its prominent contributors, such as Socrates, who questioned the value of writing, Marshall McLuhan, Walter Ong, Jacques Ellul, and Neil Postman. Postman coined the term media ecology to describe how changes in dominant media alter the human and social environment. 
Media ecology as a discipline is comparatively less concerned with the content of a given medium and more concerned about how the mere presence of that medium itself alters individual consciousness, social structures, or cultural habits and sensibilities. In this book, I am asking a media ecological question. How has the movement from language-based media to image-based and electronic media altered our sensibilities, and how, in turn, has this change in sensibility shaped today's preachers? I will suggest at the proper point that exposition of a text, whether sacred or secular, requires the development of certain human sensibilities which, if not developed, render the individual as incapable of preaching as if he had no larynx. But first, let me attempt to establish my thesis that many ordained pe- people simply can't preach. And also, and uh, what he leaves out, as you uh, pointed out, is the fact that many preachers are not called to preach. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, he's right. There are many ordained clergy that can't preach. You've also got to look at it and ask, why can they not preach? Baptist preaching is different than some of your liturgical, more high church preaching. Um, there's there's something out there called the lectionary mm-hmm. that a lot of more high church um, denominations preach. It's got a uh, the lectionary has ideas for sermons. It's got rough outline, rough illustrations, or rough exegesis, and it, it puts all preachers in that denomination on the same uh, passage. So are they using the Bible? Are they using the lectionary? Um, are they using somebody's, somebody else's outline? Why can they not preach other than the fact they're not called? I don't think he answers that question. He, he jumps and blames the media. And, and I do believe that the media does have a, part to play in that but my question is is that the only part and he seems to think yes Mm -hmm. Hmm. all right uh now when we say media uh uh, i I think we need to quickly define what we mean by the media i mean uh we're not i think uh dr gordon isn't talking about media as in uh like news media um or uh, journalism or things like that. Uh, we're talking about uh, things like books versus uh, TV and movies and uh, things like that. So I, I just felt like I needed to clarify that. Uh, and, not- and, and I think, I think Bobby, that that's a problem with his book. He doesn't clarify what he means by media. Mm-hmm. If you go to the man on the street and ask them, what is the media? They're going to say, CNN, Fox News, they're going to say the local newspaper, magazines. But I think just from reading the the book, I think he is defining media. He doesn't say this, but I think he's defining media as the whole gambit, social media, uh, print media, uh, audio uh, media like radio and podcasts. I think he's talking about all media in general. But again, you've hit on a a subject. He does not define what... what he means. And so um, it's called a fallacy of equivocation. He's changing the meaning of the term. He doesn't tell us what he means. And, mm-hmm. and that's a problem with his book. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Now, what do you think of his use uh, of Dabney? First, uh, uh, who is R.L. Dabney, who he quotes for his uh, cordial prerequisites? Yeah. Well, Dabney was a guy that lived, as they like to say, yesteryear mm-hmm. and taught uh, rhetoric and some um, some homiletics, wrote a, I think it was, I have it, but I don't see it right now. He wrote about a two to three volume book on rhetoric. And uh, it's, it's a classic work. It really is. It, it, it's good. Um, and I applaud his use of that. That that is what we call a primary source. He's appealing to an authority. I think it's good, but my only 
Um, problem with it is he cites Dabney, which is, I think, a legitimate citation because Dabney need to be cited. But he should have cited somebody also more recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, preaching's changed in, uh, since the time when Robert Dabney's been, been dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some great, uh, what I would like to call homileticians, some great preaching books from the 20th century and even in modern day. So I think he would have done himself better to um, cite Dabney plus more modern, but I will give him credit. I do think that, that his citation was excellent. All right. One, one additional thing about uh, Dabney uh, is that he was a uh, proponent of uh, slavery. So, he he lived during uh, the antebellum period. Uh, was a major proponent of slavery and, and uh, tried to use the Bible to support slavery. Yeah, uh, I think I had read that, and you know that's a knock against him. But you've got mm-hmm. to look at what he says, and, and you've got to make this dichotomy between his views on slavery and what he says on preaching, right. and. I have not seen anywhere where his views on preaching were racist views. Now we need to condemn him, mm-hmm. but even as I like to say, even a blind squirrel can find a nut every now and then. So, right. But he was, he, 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 he was a, uh, a proponent of slavery. Mm-hmm. Which a, a lot of uh, Southern pastors uh, during that time were as well. Um, he he wasn't the only one, uh, so we sh- we shouldn't condemn him and only him. Uh, just uh, pointing that out. Right. All right. Uh, on page twenty-two, I think uh, Doctor Gordon makes the case for a yearly preaching review. Uh, you know where the or uh, co- a pastor's congregation kind of uh, evaluates uh, the preacher. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me talk personally, okay? Not talking mm-hmm. professionally. Well, let me do let, let me do per, personal and professional. Professionally, I think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I don't want it done. <laughs> um, because I don't believe everybody in the church, first of all, is saved. They they come to church, but are people who are lost as a ball in tall weeds in our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, what qualifications do they have to evaluate preaching? Um, they just know whether they like it or not. So I don't like it, but I would, I'm talking about personally, I don't like it, but I would add this. They do evaluate your sermon every Sunday mm-hmm. uh, because they come to the altar. They, they, uh, grow in Christ. Um, maybe their hearts are stirred for discipleship or for evangelism. Mm-hmm. If nothing's happening, then the preacher needs to say, okay, is it my sermon? Is it me? So that's the first place you got to look. So I believe they are evaluating your sermons mm-hmm. uh, every week. And you got basically 52 evaluations a year. And if you do other uh, sermons such as a Sunday night or Wednesday night, you've got over a hundred evaluations a year. So I, I would simply argue professionally, it's a good idea. Personally, I wouldn't want it. And, mm-hmm. and practically they are, um, evaluating your sermon. Alrighty. I'm talking about something like, you know, like a, like a written review of it. Um, but well, it, you, well, but see, the, the the problem is they can give you specifics and fluff. Oh, he preaches the word of God. Um, mm-hmm. He's got excitement. He's got, um, you know, in, inspiring sermons. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's general. If you're going to critique me, okay, if I preach the word of God, give me two or three examples. That's a That's a critique is mm-hmm. you preach the word of God because you preached on the doctrine of the rapture 
and you exegeted the scripture and brought it out. That, but just giving me this mom and pop mm -hmm. general review, I don't think is sufficient. Mm -hmm. Because every pastor is going to argue, no matter liberal or conservative, every pastor is going to argue, I preach the word of God. Mm -hmm. All right. I wanted to look at... Uh... We were we were mentioning Dabney as his as a uh, Gordon's uh, source. Um, I want to uh, read to you his uh, Dabney's um, seven uh, cardinal requisites, um, and you tell me what you think of them. Uh, one textual fidelity, and what what I mean by cardinal requisites, this is. Uh, let me see. Let me uh, read this uh, ver uh, thing to you. These seven requisites, not excellences, but requisites, uh, are seven minimal requirements that Dabney believed and his viewers agreed were essential to every sermon. None of these seven categories is subjective. Each is perfectly susceptible of objective evaluation. All right. So uh, first, uh, textual fidelity. Um, second, unity. Uh, three, evangelical tone. Four, instructiveness. Uh, five, movement. Six, point. And seven, order. Um, <coughs> textual fidelity. Uh, start with number one. Now, obviously, a preacher has to be uh, faithful to Scripture. But what does that mean, faithful to Scripture? Most pastors will tell you, I'm faithful to Scripture. But mm -hmm. they can they can believe in some some theological heresy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, he's retired now, but there's a guy that lived up, I think it was in New Jersey, a guy named John Shelby Spong, who was an uh, Episcopal bishop, wrote, wrote academic books. And he doesn't believe Jesus was born of a virgin, but mm -hmm. he will claim to preach the Word of God. So when you say textual uh, faithfulness, first of all, you got to ask yourself, what is that? Because Spurgeon, um, Spurgeon would say that he was faithful to preaching the text, but mm -hmm. Spurgeon cited a lot of, of scripture. He was more of a textual preacher and not a, a uh, sometimes he did topical preaching. I'm reading through mm -hmm. Spurgeon's sermons now, but Spurgeon very, very rarely did it expository preaching. Mm -hmm. So when, when he talks about uh, textual, uh, what, what's the word? Fidelity. Fidelity. Yeah. Fidelity. Then what, you know, are, are you saying that there's only one style of preaching that, that is that way? And that's well, expository. You know, I, I think he was a little, let me, uh, on that. let me read the questions that, uh, uh, Dr. Gordon, uh, asks, uh, does the significant point of the sermon arise out of the significant point of the text? Is the thrust of the sermon merely an aside in the text? Uh, is the text merely a pretext for a minister's own idea? Yeah, but how do you judge that? How do you know, mm -hmm. judge that it's a pretext from the minister's own idea? Mm -hmm. um, that's what I'm saying. There, there's a lot in this book that was not um, – Stated, it was assumed that you come to it with with knowledge. Now, Dabney mm -hmm. is correct. We we need to be faithful to the text. Mm -hmm. um, but I would have liked to seen at least a lengthy discussion as to why preachers are not faithful to the text, and what what um, what does it look like to be faithful to the text? Is mm -hmm. an expository sermon the only one that's faithful? Can you be faithful and topical? What about narrative preaching? There, there are people that do a lot of narrative preaching. Is narrative mm -hmm. preaching faithful to the text? So, mm -hmm. what is it? What is that section about? I think, you know, I applaud, I applaud Dabney. Um, he actually had had more, um, and I applaud uh, Dr. Gordon. But I think he was a little lacking that. Now, to cut cut Dr. Gordon some slack, he did have cancer. He says in that book. Yeah. When, when he was right. And so he may not have felt like giving a, a big long uh, mm -hmm. discourse. All right. And uh, uh, I've, uh, like I'd said a while back, I, I think 
the uh, point of the book is not necessarily um, prescription, but more more diagnosis. Um, but anyway, uh, point number two, unity. Uh, apparently Dabney says, unity requires these two things. The speaker must first have one main subject of discourse to which he adher- adheres with supreme reference throughout. But this is not enough. He must, second, propose to himself one definite impression on the hearer's soul, to the making of which everything in the sermon is, to the making of which everything in the sermon is bent. Uh, well, I agree. Uh, Hayden Robinson, uh, a more uh, more modern guy, uh, in his book on biblical preaching, said said it this way: "What's the big idea? Mm-hmm. What's the big idea of the text? Preach that at." Uh, that text. So yeah. I agree with that. I would love to take a, an analysis and I've never done it on how many modern day, I'll call them preaching scholars have actually talked about the unity of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, it was obviously important in antebellum America, mm-hmm. but the question is, is it, important today mm-hmm. uh, i think in some ways no in some ways yes uh just depends on the situation but dabney is correct and um you know we we need to have one unified message for every sermon mm-hmm. and uh when i'm when i when i read these questions that uh dr gordon uh posits after each point from dabney uh he he uh says that it's a test, uh, you know, test the, uh, the sermon by these questions. So the, uh, the test for unity is if 10 people are asked about the sermon, what the sermon was about, uh, will at least eight of them give the same or a similar answer? You know, so uh, if, uh, people were asked after your sermon, uh, would, uh, what the sermon was about, uh, would they be able to answer? Uh, or all of them give the same answer or similar? Well, probably not. They, they would probably quote the title of the sermon because it's in the bulletin. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, number three, evangelical tone. Uh, Dabney says it. W- it is divine. It is defined by Vinette, I think that's how you pronounce his name, as the general savor of Christianity, a gravity accompanied by tenderness a severity tempered with sweetness, a majesty associated with intimacy. Blair calls it gravity and warmth united, an ardent zeal for God's glory and a tender compassion for those who are perishing. Uh, so uh, basically the idea behind evangelical tone uh, is basically, I'm guessing, like a style of preaching. Yeah, I would caution people today that because evangelicals today are different than they were in Dabney's day. Mm -hmm. Dabney was talking about conservative Bible-based preaching. Today you can be an evangelical and be a liberal. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are liberals in the evangelical theological society, which is a um, academic group of evangelicals. That's why it's called the evangelical theological society. Mm -hmm. All you have to agree to be in ETS is the scripture being inerrant? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't define what inerrancy is, so you define what you say. Yeah, I believe in it. Um, and so Clark Pinnock was in ETS, and he 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 held when he was alive to open theism. Mm-hmm. So, just for the reader, be careful. Don't get tripped up on the word evangelical. Different mm-hmm. today than it was in Dabney's time, but Dabney was correct. We need to make sure it's got an evangelical biblical tone mm-hmm. and uh, not that we're out here chasing rabbits. So, mm-hmm. so Dabney's correct on that. And I think what he was mentioned, what he was talking about with evangelical tone um, is, you know, our uh, style of preaching, whether it be, you know, the fire and brimstone or, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, some people treat, uh, preaching more as like a TED talk, that 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 kind of 
that tone. Yeah, like a conversational style preaching. Mm-hmm. All right, so number four. And, 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 and let, let, me say, let me say real quick, to, to the people in the pew, they need to listen more to the message and not to the method. In mm-hmm. many, many churches today, um, if the preacher stands up, screams, hollers, stomps, paces back and forth, when he leaves that, that, that service that day, pre- people will come by, preacher, that was a great service. Great sermon. Mm-hmm. They can't tell him what he talked about, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was to quote Shakespeare, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Hmm. So, so the people in the pews need to say, okay, he may have a different uh, uh, method than I'm used to, but what mm-hmm. does his message say? And right. I think that that's how you determine a a growing. Christian that he is focused more on the method than the me- I'm sorry, focused more on the message than the method. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, traveling up to Tennessee uh, a few years ago with my wife. Uh, her grandmother had died, um, and uh, the preacher was one of those that uh, what they call it, uh, barking or whooping or you might know what yeah. I'm talking about. Where they yeah. go hey, after every uh, uh, you know uh, statement. Some of us call that irritating. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I remember thinking at the time that he preached a, a solid um, message. I remember thinking that, um, but I couldn't tell you now uh, what he's uh, preached on. I just remember the uh, the way he preached. Oh. And, and the one thing we need to be cognizant of or aware of as preachers is that to the millennials, but even more than that, Generation Z, they are more, um, let me say, nitpicky about a style of sermon. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the younger generation don't like it. To, they hear someone like you were saying, barking and uh, pacing back and forth and saying, the Lord said the the younger generation Mm -hmm. don't like that. So, so it turns them off. So as Mm -hmm. preachers, we need to be aware of that Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, be who we are. But I learned long ago, speak in the pulpit, like you speak out of the pulpit. Mm -hmm. All right. So number four, instructiveness, Uh, the instructive sermon is that which abounds in food for the understanding it is full of thought and richly informs the mind of the hearer. It is opposed, of course, to vapid and commonplace compositions, but it is opposed also to those which seek to reach the will through rhetorical ornament and passionate sentiment without establishing rational conviction. Religion is an intelligent concern and deals with man as a reasoning creature. Sanctification is by the truth. To move men, we must instruct. No Christian can be stable and consistent, save as he is intelligent. If you would not wear out after you have ceased to be a novelty, give the minds of your people food. Well, I like that statement, to move men, we must instruct. Mm-hmm. There's this sentiment today that um, doctrine is boring. So let's let's preach a sermonette to Christians, at, Christianettes and just uh, have this feel-good uh type of preaching, mm-hmm. um, especially in more larger contemporary churches. Um, but instruction, it, that's always been the way you move people. Um, anybody can stir up people's emotions, but the preacher must get in there and do his homework and prepare himself so he can come out on Sunday morning or if they have a Sunday night and move people to action because that's that's at the end of the day what your job is is to move people to action whether that's personal action of repentance whether that's external action of uh evangelism or whatever so Mm -hmm. that's that's i I believe the ultimate goal of, of any sermon to move people to action but also to glorify 
uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. And uh, Dr. Gordon uh, gives this test. Does the sermon significantly engage the mind or is the sermon full of commonplace cliches, slogans, and general truths? Is the hearer genuinely likely to rethink his view of God, society, church, or self, or his reasons for holding his current views? Is the mind of the attentive listener engaged or repulsed? Well, I would answer yes uh, to many of those. I mean, we have what the last statistic I saw, 75% of our young people, when they go to college, they renounce their faith. And a lot of that is because of the pulpit, because mm-hmm. we are not instructing. So, yeah, I, I would I would say yes to to, to many of those questions. Mm-hmm. All right. Movement. Uh, movement is not a blow or shock communicating only a single or instantaneous impulse, but a sustained progress. It is in short a f- uh, it, it is in short that force thrown from the soul of the orator into his discourse by which the soul of the hearer is urged with a constant and accelerated progress toward that practical impression, which is designed for the result. The language of the orator must possess in all its flows, a nervous brevity and a certain well-ordered haste like that of the racer pressing to his goal. Uh, Basically the flow of the sermon. Right. Right. And uh, you need that. You need to have a logical flow to your sermon, um, you have your first point, and then your second point should piggyback off your first. Your, your third should piggyback. Now, Charles Stanley had like 10, 10 points. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I always, when he got down around six or seven, thought, what was his first again? <laughs> but that, that was me. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, they should be in logical uh, logical order. Right, and the uh, – uh, Dr. Gordon's test, uh, do the earlier parts of the sermon contribute to the latter part's full effect? Does the address have intellectual and consequently emotional momentum? Number six, uh, point. Uh, Dabney uses the word point to describe the overall intellectual and emotional impact of a sermon. Point is thus a result of unity, movement, and order, which put a convincing, compelling weight on on the soul of the hearer. The hearer feels a certain point impressing itself upon him and feels that he must either agree or disagree, uh, assent or deny. That's pretty, that's pretty self-explanatory there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of them things that uh, you tell the people what you're going to say, and then you, you tell them what you've already said, and then you retell them. So. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to both... Uh, Movement and unity, um, you know, does the point uh, does the point come across in all the uh, in the movement of the uh, message? Um, you know, and uh, is the basically is the point uh, come across throughout the entirety of the sermon? Right. So, uh, Dabney's or I'm sorry, uh, Doctor Gordon's question, his test is the effect of the sermon on those who believe it similar. If encouraged, if it encouraged one, did it tend to encourage all and for the same reason? If it troubled one, did it tend to trouble all and for the same reason? If it made one thankful, did it tend to make all thankful and for the same reason? The one thing about uh, his, about uh, Dr. Gordon's uh, test here is that not everybody gets the same thing uh, out of uh, the same message. Um, I'm sure you've come across people that have told you uh, that they got a point from your uh, messages, your sermons, that you had no intention whatsoever of uh, uh, preaching. Uh, right. And, um, we, we, you know, with this point in mind, we need to understand <laughs> The, the people in the pews, no matter how large of a congregation we have, whether it's five people or 5,000, everyone's at a different place in life and in their spiritual walk. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand that. So, uh, you know, we don't, we don't need to take a survey 
and ask where people are so that we can orient our sermon. But we're going to hit some, but we're we're going to miss some. But uh, so each week we need to aim to hit the hearts. I heard a preacher say last year, actually, that one of his deacons came up to him and said, preacher, you really stepped on my toes today. And that preacher said, I am so, so sorry. He said, no, no, preacher, don't worry about it. I need my toes stepped on. He said, no, no, no. I wasn't aiming for your toes. I was aiming mm-hmm. for your heart. Hmm. Well, hopefully what uh, what got felt in the toes uh, made its way up to the heart. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. All right. And, uh, the last of Dabney's um, cardinal requisites, and it honestly, uh, well, it, it relates back to point uh, movement and uh uh, unity is order. Uh, we would call, and uh, Gordon says we would probably call this organization, but the idea is the same. A discourse, sacred or otherwise, cannot have unity, movement, or point without having order. Order is simply the proper arrangement of the parts, so that what is what so that what is earlier prepares for what is later. A well-ordered sermon reveals a sermon's unity makes the sermon memorable, and gives the sermon a great point. So uh, Gordon's test, could the hearers compare notes and reproduce the outline of the sermon? If they could not reproduce the outline, could they state it how, could they state how it progressed from one part to another? Hmm. Well, you know, one way to handle this Mm -hmm. is if your church has a Sunday night, to have start something on Sunday night called the teaching on the preaching, mm-hmm. when you can begin to teach what you just preached. I mean, even though preaching and teaching are biblically linked, you you can teach it in a more uh, a more non sermonic way and restate everything. And, and use it for discipleship. And so that's a good way to, to fulfill um, those seven points mm-hmm. is just start something called teaching on the preaching. All right. I like it. Uh, so uh, what Gordon says about the, um, the seven cardinal requisites uh, to conclude is that I don't insist that, and he, this is uh, quoting uh, Gordon here. I don't insist that Dabney's way of describing what is essential to a sermon is the only or necessarily best way of doing so. One could make a reasonable case that both movement and point are in fact results of a sermon that has unity and is well ordered. We would be we would then be left with five essential traits of a Christian sermon. That it have unity and order, and that that it be expositional evangelical, i.e. Christ-centered, and instructive. I don't think anyone could argue against these, and I don't believe in homiletical history that anyone has ever uh, argued against them. Right, <laughs> right, and that's that's a, a, a reason that he cited Dabney, because Dabney is an authority, but as an authority from what? 150 years ago, maybe 200. So, mm-hmm. I think I think uh, I remember that reading that Dabney died in uh, 1890s, if I remember correctly. I, I'd have to go back and look it up. Uh, but let me see now. Uh, yeah, uh, he lived from 1820 to 1890. Yeah, so I mean, it, it is a good text. Believe mm-hmm. me, it, it is a it is a very good text. And um, I think it accomplishes uh, Dr. Gordon's point uh, well. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on shorter versus longer sermons? Uh, and this is where Dr. Gordon talks about the almost universal desire for briefer sermons. Is uh, shorter sermons better than longer ones? 
you think? Mm-hmm. I think it depends. What are you preaching and why? You know, if you're preaching on the rapture for something like <laughs> that many churches have a homecoming, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to go in there and preach a lengthy uh, sermon. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's based on the context of what you're preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past Sunday, our service begins at 10 a.m., and I take the pulpit around 1030. By the time I got done preaching, it was 1130. So I preached for one solid hour. I mm. didn't realize that. The good thing about a pastor, though, is he can always do a part two next week. So he, mm-hmm. if it's too long, he can cut it down to next week. So he's got to be aware of his congregation and, mm-hmm. you know, are people in tune? If not, cut it off and do a to be continued uh, next week. Right. Uh, did anybody complain about the length of your sermon? My wife, my mom. <laughs> uh, Dr. Gordon talked, uh, says that uh, when he and his wife uh, visited a surgeon uh, to discuss uh, what to do about his cancer, uh, he, he says, quote, he spoke to us for what we would re- realize uh, later was close to 45 minutes, but the entire time, neither my wife nor I had checked their watches to see when he might stop. We had a profound interest in my cancer and its treatment, and we listened attentively to a well-organized, informative, and sensitively delivered discussion about the cancer, its treatment, and my prognosis. Now, we would have complained about the length of the meeting had the surgeon been unclear, disorganized, cliche-ridden, or uninterested. And unfortunately, there are doctors like that. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, it ultimately depends on uh, the message uh, and how it's delivered as to whether or not people complain about the length of it. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> right, um, let me see now. Just kind of going over my notes a little bit. Um, do you think... Uh, he was a little over-reliant, uh, Dr. Gordon, on being able to read classical uh, texts, you know, as far yeah. as, uh, you know, things like, you know, uh, the ancient Greek uh, plays and things like that. Yes. All right. I think it's, that's more of a preference than... Uh, uh, mandate. Mm-hmm. I think as long as the preacher is reading, and and whether it's a novel or a book of theology or even articles, mm-hmm. yeah, he, just he, keep your just keep your mind in, engaged. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't mm-hmm. think it's necessarily. Uh, to read the classics. I've not read all the classics. I mean, I've read Aristotle and Plato, mm-hmm. but I've not read all the classics. I think his point is that, um, you know, what we read uh, influences our language, how we speak. Uh, so the language of the classics uh, imparts itself upon uh, how we preach. Yes, but there's also words in the classics that you have to have a dictionary to find out what they mean. Yep. And I want, kind of out, outdated old words. I do wonder what, uh, Dr. Gordon, uh, thought of, uh, or thinks of DL Moody. Uh, uh, I remember hearing that when he, when, uh, Moody visited London, some of his contemporaries, uh, thought that you know, he, he could pronounce Jerusalem with in one syllable. Yes. Like uh, Spurgeon, uh, along with Moody, didn't have a higher education. No, but they were in, tuned in with the Spirit. Right. And and they were able to put the cookies on the bottom shelf and preach sermons with passion and vigor, mm-hmm. but also were faithful to the text. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if Dabney ever met Dale Moody. He would have lived during the time when Moody was mm-hmm. preaching. 
Uh, he would have also lived during the time when Spurgeon was preaching. So I don't know right. if Dabney ever met them. Right. I, I was uh, thinking more of uh, Dr. Gordon, what uh, he thinks with his emphasis on um, seminary and uh, classical uh, education and all that, what he would have thought of, thought of the uh, uneducated uh, Moody. Well, I don't know, but uh, I would have loved to find out. Yep. I will say that with uh, Gordon's, uh, Dr. Gordon's uh, emphasis on language and uh, whatnot, he does have a weird usage of uh, the English language, you know, uh, where he does use a little bit of improper English structure, like on the title of the book, uh, he says how the media have shaped the message uh, instead of has. Um, and he also uses a lot of, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, uh, English, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think it's a split infinitive where you start a, a, a statement with words like and or but, uh, things like that. You know, it, it's, well, well a, a split infinitive is to say Bobby will go to green cotton. So instead of Bobby will go to cotton, you add in a qualifying word. You're splitting your infinitive because the infinitive is the to cotton. Or Bobby will go to only the store. So you're splitting your infinitive, mm -hmm. which kind of is an indictment on the book. I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, an editor should have caught that. So what, what is the editor saying? And secondly, um, you know, this guy talks about reading text and reading the classics, but then on the title of his book, that's why I said titles matter. He uses improper grammar. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of what I was looking, the phrase I was looking for, improper grammar. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be, uh, well, uh, one additional point I wanted to make is um, on page 23, I put that book somewhere. Uh, I've never heard anybody but him, uh, and he's talking about uh, Psalm twenty-three, and uh, he 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 says that the word shepherd, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he says that everybody knows that shepherd uh, is actually a metaphor for a king. Uh, and it is, but I've I've never heard uh, uh, preachers use that. But he says, like it's an of course type of thing. Well, again, he's making claims. I don't know what he's referring to. What is what is his evidence for that? Um, many many scholars believe that in the New Testament, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's referring back to Psalm 23. Right. Um, so I, I don't know of any, any place in the um, Old Testament where you can take out king and shepherd. Now, did, were, there, were there occupations similar? Yes, because a king shepherd a a kingdom, mm -hmm. but he had a lot more power than the shepherd because the king could levy taxes. The king could go to war. Kind of hard to levy taxes on sheep, right? So, so the application falls down. But uh, I've never, never heard anybody take that that spin of Psalm twenty three. I, I, like I said, I haven't either. This is Bobby from the future. I do apologize, but uh, in our conversation about Dr. Gordon's book, I forgot to mention his background. Uh, so Dr. Gordon uh, is a former Presbyterian minister and college professor. Uh, and as a Presbyterian, uh, uh, he writes from a uh, Reformed and Calvinist perspective. Um, 
He currently lives in Grove City, Pennsylvania, uh, previously a professor of religion and Greek at Grove City College. Uh, prior to that, he taught for 13 years at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. Uh, and for nine years, he was a pastor of Pre uh, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashua, New Hampshire. He's also written uh, another book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal, and Promise, Law, Faith, Covenant Historical Reasoning in Galatians. Dr. Gordon is a graduate of Roanoke College, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Union Theological Seminary. Thank you. Now back to the show. But as so, I think it might be time to conclude. Um, so, what do you, uh, you have any additional thoughts, uh, not only on the book, but also, um, you know, anything else that we've uh, talked about today? I think the book is a good, is a good read. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a good introduction. Um, he wrote another one entitled Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. So I'd love to read that someday. But uh, I applaud the man for wanting to do something about preaching. Uh, it's not your typical homiletic books where it, it talks about voice and mannerisms and uh, how to deal with a text. So he's actually hit upon a, a, a big um, a big problem in our churches. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I applaud him for that. Uh, and he said he's been wanting to write that for years. I think he should have done a little bit more homework. Mm -hmm. But when you're a professor, you know, you write a book and get credit for it. So. All right. Now, what what books uh, similarly would you uh, recommend? Well, uh, John MacArthur has one out on preaching. Uh, Wayne Wayne McDeal, uh, it's kind of an older book, about twenty years old, but he's got one called "The Twelve Essentials of Great Preaching." It's another older one, Charles Kohler. It's about. 25 years old. It's called how to preach an expository sermon. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget the guy's name. He, um, that of Tennessee was a, he was a Brit. Um, I forget his name. Uh, D Martin Lloyd Jones has mm -hmm. one uh, on preaching and preachers. So there's, there, there, there's a lot of them out there. Have you ever read, uh, uh, H.B. Charles Jr.'s uh, On Preaching? Who? H.B. Charles Jr. No, but I would love to because I think he's in Jacksonville. Yep. Uh, he wrote one called On Preaching. Um, your former pastor that we went to go see um, up in... Uh, Dillon. Dillon, South Carolina, had uh, Herb Revis. On the way back, we had found an interview that H.B. Charles Jr. did with them. Yes. Um, and uh, he kind of, he praised H.B. Uh, uh, Charles's uh, On Preaching book. Yeah, they're out there. And so, um, uh, one of the classics is a guy all right, named So Hayden. I think that will uh, conclude us. All right, man. Uh, appreciate thank you all for joining me. Or joining us, I'm sorry. Thank y'all for joining us. And we will see y'all next time. Uh -huh.